can Christians love themselves? So uh, let me just say a prayer before I begin. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to look at this important topic of um, what it means to understand our own worth. And I pray that you would open our, our hearts and our minds um, to hear from you tonight. Would you give me your words to speak? Um, and would you be with us in our discussion period? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so in 2015, Sophie Tanner got married to herself. She had 20 bridesmaids who danced through the pavilion gardens at Brighton to Kendrick Lamar's song, I Love Myself, and her dad gave her away to herself. <laughs> her friend was dressed as a cardinal and he read the vows, which Tanner had adapted from traditional Christian vows to the singular. And then she went on a honeymoon trip by herself to do volunteer work. Um, so how this came about was that after a hard breakup, Tanner had been happy to finally feel like herself again rather than being absorbed in someone else. So she wanted to celebrate this moment and her commitment to always loving herself. So she decided to make it official. To people who want to set her up with someone other than herself, she says, I married myself and I'm really happy. A banner in Tanner's home reads, my wife, sweetheart, you are the love of my life and I'm thankful. <laughs> Tanner is part of the growing trend of sologamy. Solog sologamy? I'm not sure. <laughs> sologamy? Uh, it's defined as marriage to yourself. So the sologamy movement is almost entirely popular among women. Some have dreamed of a fairy tale wedding, being a princess for a day. But they either have no prince or they don't want one. Others want to poke out the concept of marriage in general or the expectation for a woman to get married. Most see sologamy as a way of expressing a commitment to their own care and happiness. Marry Yourself Vancouver is a wedding planning agency mm -hmm. that specializes in these solo ceremonies, mm -hmm. just next door. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm not looking for the one, its Facebook page says, I am the one. <laughs> <laughs> these sologamous ceremonies are becoming more and more popular in one video, a woman reads vows to herself. I love the way you are so passionate about what you do and have such a creative drive. Another woman who married herself advises about sologamous ceremony plans. You can do anything you want. I think what's key is to write your vows and to feel them in your heart is true. Seven Vancouver women married themselves and they claim to have started the sologamy trend and they renewed them, their vows to themselves 10 years later. <laughs> It's working out so far. <laughs> People in sologamous marriages claim that this is a demonstration of self-love, not narcissism. Tanner says that she's not a narcissist because narcissists actually don't love themselves. Rather, they have fragile egos that need to be constantly affirmed. Tanner and others choosing sologamy claim that self-love is the basis for loving other people well. And in case you're wondering, yes, sologamists still can marry other people. <laughs> they can cheat on themselves. <laughs> sologamy may be an extreme expression of self-love. I'm choosing a deliberately extreme example, but the language that its adherence use to describe is common in Western culture right now. Um, so this lecture is going to look at self-love, self-esteem and self-love to be precise, and how to think about it from a Christian perspective. 
I'm going to start by addressing the issues that self-love is attempting to solve. Then I will look at its techniques, how it tries to get there. And then we'll ask, is it working? And then finally, we are going to examine a biblical perspective on self-esteem and self-love. And I, I just want to make a note on terms before I begin that I'm going to talk about both self-esteem and self-love in this lecture. The terms are closely related and sometimes used interchangeably. To be honest, it's kind of hard to tell what they actually mean. Um, I was using them interchangeably until I thought I better figure this out. Uh, so I, there's not really a precise definition, but I'm going to try and make a distinction uh, later on because self-esteem has been used more in the past and self-love has become more in vogue from what I've observed, um, the, the phrase. Okay, so I want to begin by looking at what problems the self-love movement is trying to fix. What kind of thinking or actions did it arise in response to? Well, in traditional societies, people were taught that the root cause of societal problems was having too high a view of yourself not too low of you, too high. And in many cultures, this is still true today. Collectivist or communal cultures especially value conformity and group identity. So people in traditional cultures tend to define themselves more by relationships to others than by their internal experiences of self. Whereas we say the squeaky wheel gets the grease, the person who's the loudest. In Japan, they say the nail that stands out gets pounded down. <laughs> My Japanese friend says that in Japan, it's considered inappropriate for parents to praise their children publicly. So she told me about a friend of hers whose mom would praise her privately, but publicly she would shame her. And this was so confusing for her friend because she didn't know what her mom really thought. Mm. But praise, at least publicly, is considered dangerous for children because it may make them too arrogant. When society teaches that having too high of a view of yourself is the main problem, it often does turn to shame as a means to keep people from getting too big for their britches. And shame can be a highly effective social motivator. We see that all the time, um, at least in the short term. And unfortunately, the church, Christian culture, is no stranger to this. A few years ago, I and Naomi, where is she? <laughs> We're in a small group for our church, and we decided to study the imitation of Christ by the medieval monk Thomas Akempis. I had heard of it a lot of times, so I expected very good things. Instead, almost every week I showed up ready to hurl the book across the room. Naomi heard lots of my diatribes. <laughs> so in the book, I read things like, if I belittle myself, think of myself as nothing, throw off all self-regard, and account myself to be dust as I truly am, then your grace will come upon me and your light will enter my heart. And all self-esteem, no matter how infinitesimal it be, will be drowned in my total nothingness and will disappear forever. Notice how it's self-esteem that's regarded as dangerous. It's probably a, a modern translation. <laughs> I don't know if they had that term when the book was written. And one part of the book is written as a sort of Jesus calling style where Jesus talks to the reader. Um, but this is a Jesus who would not appeal to most suburban moms who read Jesus calling. This Jesus says instead, direct your anger against yourself and do not allow puffed up pride to get its hold on you. Show that you are humble and lowly by permitting everyone to walk over you and trample you underfoot like mud in the street. What have you to complain about you shallow man? You soiled sinner, 
what answer can you give those who criticize you since you have ever so frequently offended God and many times over have deserved help? Just the right time, guy. <laughs> so that's probably not the morning devotional most people want to read. Thomas Akempis emphasizes the spiritual life as a rejection of desire, of consolation from other people, and even of socializing. Um, although he was writing for the monastic community, his work has been very influential in the church over the years. Mm -hmm. And other ascetics from his tradition demonstrate similar ideas. So to wallow in one's nothingness is seen as a purification. And today this, this kind of thinking is often known as worm theology. Um, this name comes from an Isaac Watts hymn found in these lyrics. Alas, and did my savior bleed, and did my savior die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? And actually there are four places in the Bible where it refers to humanity as worms, but none of those places isn't making the point that humanity is like a worm. I can, we can go more into that later. Uh, but is this, is this what Christian humility really looks like? Thinking of yourself as nothing and letting other people trample on you. I've seen a lot of people come through Libri who criticize themselves for every failure and sin, no matter how small, and believe that this is pleasing to God. Instead of bringing freedom, Christianity in these cases keeps people enslaved to unattainable standards. I have a number of friends who left Christianity because they felt that it taught them to think less of themselves, that they were always feeling ashamed and like they had to hide. And some of them became burnt out in constantly doing things for other people and taking no time to care for themselves. Some of them had little sense of their own identity. Others felt this deep rooted sense of shame as if they were hiding behind this Christian facade and their worth was always contingent on how well they were able to live up to this Christian image. Um, and no wonder it feels freeing to leave that all behind. It doesn't surprise me. <laughs> One of my friends explained how good it felt not to have to make moral evaluations of everything that she did anymore. I, I had a season myself where I felt so weighed down by always trying to do the right thing, the Christian thing, that I thought, if this is what Christianity is, then I don't want this. <laughs> I don't want this kind of Christianity. So on one hand, we have this traditional view of too high a view of self as the main societal evil. And as this has been challenged, we've seen actually swing to the other pole. Instead of self-esteem as an evil to be purged, like Thomas Akempis talks about it, self-esteem has actually become the goal. What a big shift. How did this happen? So moving on to the self-esteem and self-love movements. There's a lot that could be said about how Western culture became focused on individual identity, um, but I don't have time to go into all of that. So I'm just gonna skip ahead to where the concept of self-esteem first became widespread. Um, started first with David Hume, but leaving him aside, this, it really took off with the humanistic psychologists in the mid 20th century. Mm -hmm. So two well-known examples are Abraham Maslow and Carl Rogers. Mm -hmm. Maslow was, Abigail, why don't you tell us what he, he came up with? That's the dog. Hierarchy of needs. Hierarchy of needs. Oh, okay. okay, you have to go back to class. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, this pyramid diagram. Sorry, I don't have a PowerPoint, uh, but we see human needs arranged in ascending order of importance. So, at the bottom, we have basic, basic physical needs food, shelter, sleep, the things that just help us stay alive. In the second tier, we have safety needs. 
And the third are social needs, like friendship, fitting into a group, romantic connections. And the fourth level is self-esteem. The final level is self-actualization, mm-hmm. which is reaching your full potential. But self-esteem is necessary before we can move on to that final level. So this is a pretty high ranking. But what is self-esteem exactly? There is not a clear consensus because a lot can be lumped into it and often is. But I'm just going to quote the the definition I googled and found on Merriam-Webster. It defines self-esteem as confidence in one's own worth and abilities, self-respect. So you can see that in this definition, abilities are linked to worth and self-respect. And this will be important to remember when we get to self-love. Carl Rogers was another humanistic psychologist, and he said that a therapist ought to give his client unconditional positive regard, Mm -hmm. no matter what, no matter what they were doing or saying, in order to build up her self-esteem. Self-esteem was seen as essential for psychological healing and for human flourishing. And this idea began to take hold more and more so that it began began to even be implemented as government policy in some places Mm. to build up self-esteem. So my colleague at Southboro Labrie, Sarah Chestnut, says that when she was in elementary school, she and all her classmates had notes taped to their desks that read, I'm lovable, I'm capable, I'm someone special. Mm. They were all lovable, all capable, all special. (laughs) And Sarah grew up in California, the epicenter of the self-esteem movement in the 80s and 90s. According to The New Yorker, this movement argued that increasing people's self-esteem could reduce crime, teen pregnancy, and a host of other social ills, even pollution. The government of California and probably other places considered self-esteem worth investing in if it could save them money in the long run because they wouldn't have to deal with all this crime, all these other issues. Psychologist Nathaniel Brandon was one of the leaders of the self-esteem movement, and he said, I cannot think of a single psychological problem from anxiety and depression to fear of intimacy or of success to spouse battery or child molestation that is not traced back to the problem of low self-esteem. The phrase self-esteem seems to be less popular now. One article I read um, commented that it's mostly been replaced by this concept of self-love. And I've seen this shift even in my lifetime into self-love being talked about a lot more. But what is the difference? Merriam-Webster defines self-love as regard for one's own being and happiness, chiefly considered as a desirable rather than a narcissistic characteristic. So can you hear the shift from self-esteem language? In this definition, self-esteem is more about having confidence in what you can accomplish, whereas self-love is more of an attempt to like and care for yourself regardless of what you can do or what you can achieve. The two concepts are definitely linked and they're often used interchangeably. And I'm going to talk about them both. Self-love has become a very popular concept and not just with individuals, but with the companies who want individuals to buy their stuff. So for many years, advertising has worked by making its consumers feel bad about themselves and then promising them something to make them feel better. But a current trend in advertising is actually to market self-love. That how does that work? Why do people still wanna buy your stuff? Um, This can create, and it seems like it does, create brand loyalty because people feel good about themselves when they're watching this ad. um, And then they associate this with the brand 
which they also see as doing good in the world and they want to support that. One company actively promoting the self-love message is The Body Shop, which I always think is just a creepy name for a store. <laughs> um, they have a section on their website dedicated to spreading self-love. Here is how they answer the question, what is self-love? It's not about loving the last thing you bought, loving the latest makeover trend you tried, the last thing you did well, or the new relationship you're in. These things lift you up, sure. But what about loving yourself? There are plenty of things outside of ourselves we want to believe make us feel good. Those things can be gratifying and fulfilling. What do people mean when they talk about self-love? Here's how we like to think about it. Self-love goes beyond feeling good about yourself. It's bigger and deeper than anything you've felt before. It might even be uncomfortable. And that's okay. Self-love is about appreciating yourself. It's about self-acceptance and giving yourself permission to grow into who you really are. If you're thinking that this sounds pretty vague, you're right. <laughs> what things exactly are we supposed to appreciate and accept about ourselves? How do we know if we're growing into who we really are? Luckily, the body shop will try to sell us stuff to help us become who we really are. Um, but all that's clear in the statement is that self-love is an internal sense of feeling good about yourself, not based on achievement or external accomplishments. So that is where the shift is from self-esteem, which said, look, you can grow up to be the president and you are capable. And this is saying you don't need to do that stuff to be worthy. Self-love also seems to emphasize self-care. So love is a verb, <laughs> not just a feeling, but an action. Self-care is a way of expressing love to yourself. And almost anything focused on yourself can be branded as self-care. Lighting a candle, going to yoga, eating chocolate, taking a selfie I saw on one list. <laughs> 30 days challenge of self-love and the first one and the last one were to take a selfie. Um, pretty challenging. <laughs> and I, I see a lot of ads now um, prompting consumers, especially women, self-love seems to be really big among women, to practice self-care by buying whatever product is featured. So if I don't buy those essential oils, I guess I'm not caring for myself. Mm -hmm. That's the implication. Maybe nobody embodies the self-love marketing trend better than the Dove campaign for real beauty. Probably most of us have seen these ads. Based on research that showed that only 2% of women consider themselves beautiful, Dove has attempted to broaden the definition of beauty. They do this largely by using models who look different than the typical body types seen in advertising. In one ad, two sets of doors in various countries are labeled either average or beautiful, and women choose which door to walk through. It's, it's, it's seen as sad if someone walks through the average door. Um, so the implication is that if they identify that way, they must have poor self-love. In another ad, women are challenged to take honest selfies, which are then displayed in a gallery. In this ad, a photographer tells a group of high school girls gathered in the gym, you have the power to change and redefine what beauty really is. Another woman comments, the creativity of social media is allowing you to define for yourself what beauty is. The Dove commercial ends with the words, the power is in your hands. But is the power really in our hands? How are self-esteem and self-love working out for people? Are they delivering all that they promise? Spoiler, no. <laughs> Let's take a look at some problems with the self-esteem and the self-love movements. 
the first question that we should be asking of any popular campaign for social change is, does it work? And the self-esteem movement, when it was implemented <laughs> through the government, actually had very little scientific research to back it up when it began. There was not a proven connection between self-esteem and all these social ills that it was supposed to fix. But it just makes sense, right? That when people believe in themselves, they will improve. Years later, researchers were commissioned to find out whether the self-esteem movement had actually lived up to all this hype. And they found no correlation between self-esteem programming and academic success, which was one of the main things that it was supposed to help with. Rather than seeing a boost in their grades as a result of these assumptions, American students had declined in standardized testing. But at the same time, they had overblown assessments of their own achievements. So one study tested math skills for both Korean and American students, and then they asked them how they felt that they did. Well, the American students thought they did amazing, the Korean students thought they did terribly, and the opposite, in fact, was true. <laughs> so just believing that you're good at math somehow does not make you good at math. <laughs> uh, research found that rather than self-esteem creating the conditions for success, success actually led to higher self-esteem. Achieving something then helped you to feel better about yourself rather than feeling better about yourself made you achieve. Steve Salerno, author of Sham, How the Self-Help Movement Made America Helpless, dedicates a whole chapter to school children and self-esteem. He says that this movement caused teachers to sacrifice real learning so that everybody could feel good about themselves. Comparison makes kids feel bad. This is how the reasoning went. So the bar should be lowered until everybody can meet it. Instead of learning math, kids should toss a koosh ball around telling each other what they like about each other. <laughs> Salerno writes, it's doubtful that any major cultural movement has been bureaucratically endorsed based on flimsier evidence or been responsible for more disastrous results than the attempt to imbue American children with self-esteem. He goes on, self-esteem is one of those things that we make re reflex assumptions about. That is to say, we assume it's a good thing, but scant evidence exists to show that self-esteem really is good for children. It may even be bad for them. <laughs> Sounds strange. Salerno pointed out that once the American students graduate, they won't be patted on the back by prospective employers. He wrote of how his college students blamed everyone other than themselves for their poor grades. Salerno's book was published in 2005 and a lot has changed since then. The students in 2005's elementary schools have grown up and are in university. So Gen Z, Gen Z is ruling the college roost, and it does not look that great. Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff write of these consequences of how this group was raised in their book, The Coddling of the American Mind, which is published in 2018. The young people of Gen Z have little ability to question their own feelings or to receive criticism, and they are more mentally fragile than ever. The self-esteem movement, which was supposed to make people less anxious and less depressed, actually has made people more anxious and more depressed. Um, a study on mental health in American colleges reported that in the 2015 to 2016 school year, half of all students attended mental health counseling. And one out of every seven women at American universities thinks of herself as having a psychological disorder compared to one in 18 among millennial women, that's my generation. And of course, the causes of this sharp rise in mental illness are multifaceted. They're not easy to tease apart. It's not just the self-esteem movement. 
Um, and the book points to social media as also having a big effect, which of course um, does have a big effect on self-esteem too. And helicopter parenting as two primary factors. Um, Haidt and Lukianoff make the case that the current obsession with safe spaces, safe words, and safe ideas on campus is actually responding to, not creating, although it is enforcing, a fragile generation of young people who see the world as essentially dangerous and themselves as ill-equipped to deal with its challenges. So the attempt to boost self-esteem by protecting kids from the realities of comparison and competition hasn't worked. Students may trust their intuition more, but their intuition is getting worse. It is muddied with anxiety and depression and impulsive thinking. Psychology professor Paul Witz says, there is no evidence that high self-esteem reliably causes or prevents anything, good or bad. A lot of people with high self-esteem have caused quite a lot of trouble for society. In fact, contrary to popular belief, some criminals actually have quite high self-esteem. <laughs> self-esteem has been the special project of the self-help movement, which is a hugely popular industry. So Leonard describes how self-help shticks appeal either to victimization on one hand or empowerment on the other. Those are the two forces that drive the self-help movement. And empowerment is really the driving force behind the, self, the um, self-love movement. So uh, turning now from self-esteem to self-love, which is very closely related, but slightly different. Let's look at how self-love functions through the lens of body image, which we talked about in advertising. So... While self-esteem in schools often focused on what children could become, you can grow up to be this, you can be that, you can reach for the stars. Um, Self-love tends to focus on embracing what you already are. So when I was 16, Christina Aguilera's song, Beautiful, hit the charts. It remains her most famous song. It's an anthem of self-love. I've been listening to it like a lot <laughs> the last few days, you know, I just keep pressing press and repeat. Uh, here's an excerpt of the lyrics. Um, Every day is so wonderful. Then suddenly it's hard to breathe. Now and then I get insecure from all the pain. I'm so ashamed. I am beautiful, no matter what they say. Words can't bring me down. I am beautiful in every single way. Yes, words can't bring me down. So don't you bring me down today. To all your friends, you're delirious, so consumed in all your doom, trying hard to fill the emptiness. The piece is gone, left the puzzle undone. Is that the way it is? No matter what we do, no matter what we say, we're the song inside the tune full of beautiful mistakes. So it's a fun song to sing along to. It's hard not to sing lyrics, (laughs) but I'll spare you. and, it, and it, yeah, it's been stuck in my head. But uh, to a teenage girl, that was a pretty potent message. Um, and it's that we are beautiful, regardless of how other people see us. And even what we consider to be our flaws, our beautiful mistakes, they're actually beautiful um, in every single way. <laughs> so the song essentially tells us that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And the only beholder that counts is yourself. The 2018 movie, I Feel Pretty, has anyone seen that? Nobody, nobody watching their, yeah, Amy Schumer. Yes, yes, shout out to the two Koreans. That's why you guys get high marks. (laughs) You watched it together. (laughs) Oh, with me? We did. I thought I watched it on the plane. 
<laughs> okay, to be discussed later. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> so the main character played by Amy Schumer, she's, she's a somewhat overweight young woman. Um, she hits her head during a spin class, exercise class. She blacks out and she wakes up believing that she looks like a supermodel. So she acts accordingly and she finds that men, even elite, super handsome men, start paying attention to her. And she experiences success in her career at a top fashion company, even though she doesn't fit the, the normal mode of how they hire people, all because she believes in herself. If she can do it, we can do it too. This kind of narrative is a self-love fairy tale in which the world reshapes itself to agree with your own self-definition. But is this how reality works? When I was a teenage girl, when Beautiful came out, I was hyper aware of comparison to others. I saw exactly which girls got attention from guys and which girls didn't. And I can tell you, it was not the girls who thought that they were beautiful. <laughs> um, in fact, sometimes it was the most insecure girls who got the most attention because they were the ones who would try anything to get it, um, to be seen as attractive. And it was the Britney Spears era where you could wear very little clothing. Uh, thankfully, Facebook didn't arrive until I was 17. <laughs> um, as I've mentioned, there was a sharp rise in depression and suicide for teen girls um, when Facebook changed its age requirement. So girls today who are raised on social media have far more means to compare themselves than I did at their age. Some are even getting plastic surgery so that they can look more like their selfies, mm -hmm. these filtered selfies. Just believing that you're beautiful is not going to get you more likes on your picture. Dove says the power is in your hands, but it's not. It's cruel to suggest that other people's perception of your beauty or even your own perception of your beauty is all in your own power. That means that if other people or yourself don't see you as beautiful, you have failed. <laughs> so this is the false promise of empowerment. And it, adds, it can add shame to people who are already hurting, people who are already struggling with being shunned or ignored, then it's your fault <laughs> because you didn't believe enough in yourself. In response to this, a lot of people say that comparison should be thrown out altogether. We are all equally beautiful, and it's a flawed system that's to blame. This is where the second part of self-help victimization comes in. So victimization locates the problem outside of yourself. It's not because you don't believe enough in yourself. It's because your parents or your teachers or your boss or your society or big business, the government, the social justice warriors, the Democrats, the Republicans, etc., are to blame. So no longer do we have to deal with our own problems, we can just outsource them and make somebody else responsible. Mm -hmm. But I will tell you that victimization is not a good solution. In my years working at Libri, I have come to believe that the students who are the hardest to help are the ones who think of themselves primarily as victims because they no longer believe that change is possible. Everyone and everything is against them. Any pushback or any suggestions fall in deaf ears or they are interpreted as victim blaming. So victimization becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy. Nothing ever does change. And sometimes the kind of change that we expect from society is just not logical. One Dove commercial says, beauty standards are a form of bias. No, we should have no standards of what is beautiful. But are we really asking people to consider every person equally attractive? If you think Audrey Hepburn was prettier than I am, does that mean that you're mean and deluded? <laughs> Why is that different from considering one person smarter than another? I agree that a hypersexualized commercialist culture with many biases does really promote unrealistic beauty standards. 
But since the dawn of time, we've considered some people more attractive than others. And some of the traits used to judge beauty have remained consistent and universal. It's not just a cultural construct. It's, it's some traits have been marked across um, societies and time. So why that is and what those traits are is a lecture that again you can listen to. But uh, the concept of a beauty standard is not going to disappear, no matter how much we want it to. So even when self-love doesn't emphasize beauty, I have used this as my case study, but there's lots of other things we could talk about as far as self-love, um, but it can still put pressure on people to work up enough love for themselves or else. The woman behind the body shop self-love movement, Jamila Jamil, was interviewed about a self-love survey conducted by the body shop. She said, I see the lack of self-love as an emotional pandemic. This was during the pandemic. Um, and one which is sadly hitting younger generations the most. Self-love is an inside job. So let's all take just one positive action toward loving ourselves. As a woman, being proud of yourself and believing you are enough as you are is an act of political and social resistance. Okay, so as a woman, if you don't love yourself, you haven't just failed yourself, you've also failed socially and politically to resist. Well, love yourself, but no pressure. <laughs> so there's truth in both the victimization and the empowerment models. We do have some control over how we think of ourselves and we can change some things when we believe in our own agency. That's true, but if you, if you don't think anything of yourself and you can't achieve anything, then you probably won't achieve very much. And it is also true that there are unjust systems and damaging people who shape our lives and for some people and for some groups of people more than others. However, neither victimization nor empowerment is the whole picture of life, and neither of them can give us a true cure for the problems of shame and self-loathing. In many cases, they just make them worse. So how do we become who we want to be and see change in our society? Do we just return to social shaming to create order and achievement? I think of my friends and my family members and the people that I meet at Libri who are already deeply struggling with self-worth. Surely telling them that they're worms is not going to help things. <laughs> if, that's not what I do in my tutorials, by the way. <laughs> if the self-esteem movement is not the answer, what is the answer? Okay, so I, I wanna discuss three questions that I have for the self-esteem, the self-love, self-esteem movement. I will sit it down in this chair. Um, and then I wanna demonstrate why Christianity is uniquely equipped to answer these three questions. I see three questions that arise logically from the self-love movement, which the movement itself cannot answer. These three questions are, one, why love myself rather than hate myself? Two, what is the self that I'm trying to love? Three, what kind of love should I have for myself? Okay, so first, why love myself rather than hate myself? This may seem obvious, but it is not. If your opinion of yourself is the only one that matters, then as soon as you see yourself as a waste of skin, that becomes a true opinion. What is the logic behind claiming that a positive interpretation of yourself is more true than a negative one? Says who? If I say that you're a waste of skin and you say you're not, why is your opinion more true than mine? You're projecting your opinion onto my opinion. <laughs> the self-love movement attempts to free people from negative self-image, but actually it can feed the very beast that it is trying to destroy. What happens when you look in the mirror and you can't live up to your curated image on Instagram. 
You're told you need to try harder to love yourself and affirm yourself. But what if you can't do that? What if the negative voices are too strong and too dark and too real? Who distinguishes the truth from a lie? The body shop? And what happens if you really have failed? What if you get fired or dumped or called out on Twitter? What makes those realities less important than your successes? What if you don't have very many successes? What if you harm somebody you love, maybe even on purpose? What your thoughts, what if, what if your thoughts and your actions were weighed on a scale and on balance, most people would consider you kind of a jerk? What, what makes that self worthy of love? Why is there any moral imperative to love yourself rather than hate yourself? That's the first question. Second question, what is the self I'm trying to love? How do we know our true self? Who is the self I'm trying to love? We're told to love our authentic selves, but what is this core sense of identity grounded in? What if I wake up tomorrow thinking about how I ate so many cookies yesterday, I'll probably be single forever and die alone. Is that my true self? Or is the true self the one who wakes at me in the mirror and is like, dang girl, you're killing it. <laughs> when my self, sense of self changes, how do I know what is really me? Is me based on however I feel or is there some reference point outside of my own head? I had a close friend when I was young with an eating disorder who was very, very thin. I sat beside her on the couch, I remember this one time, and I compared her thigh to mine trying to get her to see the difference. And she couldn't not see it. She literally could not see it, even though there was a big difference, let me tell you. She was wasting away, but she could not see the reality of who she was. The actual physical reality was eclipsed by her own internal state, which she thought the skinnier that she got, the better she looked. So should that sense of reality be applauded? Who was her real self? The person that she saw or the person that I saw? Third question, what kind of love should I have for myself? What kind of love are we supposed to have for ourselves? Is love only having positive feelings about myself? Should I rejoice in everything I do and unconditionally rejoice in everything everyone else does? Alessia Cara, pop singer, sings you don't have to change a thing. The world could change its heart. But if we don't need to change, why are we all going to therapy? Does my critique of myself or someone else inevitably result in shame and self-loathing? Is there any room within love for judgment? And those three questions, why I love myself rather than hate myself, who is my real self, and how is love defined, can't be answered by the self-love industry. As I've mentioned before, just defining self-love is extremely difficult because it relies so much on individual perception. And this is the problem. Whether I celebrate myself or I criticize myself, if I am the only measure of myself, my sense of worth is only as stable as I am. The literature on self-esteem makes a, diff a distinction between contingent versus non-contingent self-esteem. Contingent versus non-contingent self-esteem. So contingent self-esteem is based on external validation from others for certain traits or behaviors. So someone with contingent self-esteem might feel really great about themselves because they have tons of followers on social media, a lot of likes on their posts, but if they lose these followers or if, if things take a turn for the worse and people call them out on the internet, their self-esteem will crash and burn and it's gone. It's contingent on having those likes and that affirmation. And this is a fragile kind of self-esteem. It's an ego that's puffed up 
and self-obsessed, but it's totally insecure. Non-contingent self-esteem, on the other hand, describes someone who has a belief that they are ontologically acceptable. Basically, their very being is acceptable. They don't have to earn their value by performing in any particular way or getting any certain type of approval. So even if they do fail at some task or lose social approval, their core identity can remain secure. How do we get this non-contingent sense of worth, this core sense of being acceptable regardless of what others believe about us. It is not going to surprise you that I think Christianity has something to say to us here. Mm -hmm. um, we've already touched on how collectivist societies, traditional societies see the individual very differently from the Western world. I lived for a year in India when I was in my early twenties. Um, the caste system was officially abolished, but in practice it was, and I'm sure it is still alive and well the determinism of karma meant that the street sweeper or the leper or the child prostitute deserved their fate because of something that they'd done in a previous life. And if you countered this by helping somebody out of their assigned lot, this is actually flying in the face of divine justice. So many people blame Christian morality for a lack of self-acceptance in society, but it is actually through the Judeo-Christian tradition that the individual is given particular dignity. That is where we get the idea of inalienable, inalienable rights. You cannot give those rights to yourself. They have to come from somewhere. Um, now, as I've mentioned before, Christians have not always interpreted the Bible as promoting the dignity and the worth of humans. So to convince you that my interpretation is correct, I want to take a look first at a famous psalm and then at a section from the New Testament from 1 Corinthians. Um, so most of you are, I'm sure, familiar with this psalm, Psalm 139 going to read through it and then I'm going to make some comments. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in, behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand Will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. 
If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So whenever I read the Psalm, I'm really struck by how contemporary it feels, <laughs> um, psychologically speaking. And I am not gonna get into the enemies of God section. We can talk about it in the discussion if you want to, um, but I think it's important to read. I don't just wanna skip over the part of Psalm that makes us uncomfortable, you know? Um, but I, I wanna talk about how, what this Psalm has to tell us about self image. So David clearly has a high regard for his own worth here. Fearfully and wonderfully made, he calls himself. When was the last time you thought of yourself that way? David marvels over how his life story has been written out every day and how God himself oversaw David's formation in utero. David is God's gift to the world. Does this seem like the gospel of self-esteem all over again? There is a key difference here. David's understanding of his worth isn't based on his own assessment of himself or the assessment of others. Rather, it's firmly rooted in God's knowledge of him. David isn't talking about how beautiful he is compared with all the other ancient kings on Instagram. Um, he's talking about how his very being reflects the reality of a loving creator. Do you see what difference this makes for dismantling both arrogance and shame? David doesn't praise himself because of his gloriousness. He praises God. He is astounded by God's thoughts, by God's pursuit of him. He doesn't think that this makes him better than other people or that he somehow earned God's favor. Instead, the emphasis is all on God's own character. David ultimately is not focused on himself or his thoughts about himself, good or bad, but on his creator. David says he can't even fathom God's care for him. In fact, David leaves all the fathoming up to God. And this is what makes the difference for the person who struggles with self-condemnation. David asked God to do the searching of his heart. He trusts God to make the right assessment, not himself. His awareness that God sees him and knows all of his actions and thoughts doesn't cause him to hide in shame like Adam and Eve did, but rather to submit himself willingly for examination. He asked God to search him. He wants God to lead him in the way everlasting, not just to leave him to his own anxious thoughts. Now, there's an important correlation in the New Testament. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over and against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? 
What Paul is saying here is quite amazing. He's speaking to the Corinthians who are dividing into factions based on whether they follow Paul or Apollos. Paul recognizes that God has trusted him with an amazing gift to spread the gospel, to plant these churches. Those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. He's not lowering the bar on his own behavior so that he can meet it. He knows this is a high calling. Yet when people have negative opinions about how well he's living up to this calling, Paul has something that keeps him steady. He has a non-contingent sense of identity. Where does this come from? I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court, he says. Okay, so so far this sounds pretty similar to the self-love, self-esteem movement. Is Paul saying, haters going to hate, so just ignore everyone's opinion and just keep on keeping on? Is he singing, I am beautiful no matter what they say. Words can't bring me down. I couldn't resist. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> um, No, Paul is taking a very different approach, radically different approach. Rather than trust his own opinion of himself, his self-esteem over other people's, he says, I do not even judge myself. I don't even care what I think about myself. How many of us can say that? Paul says that his conscience is clear. That is his internal sense of whether he's done anything right or wrong. But he recognizes that like David, who asked God to search him, he can't see his own heart clearly. He can't fully trust his own thoughts about himself. There could still be wrong that he's not seeing. Yet he trusts God to be the judge of that. Not any human, not even himself. Even though Paul has this high calling, he recognizes that this does not make him better than anyone else. What do you have that you did not receive? He asked the Corinthians. Paul knows that this is true of himself too. He remembers very well his history of persecuting Christ's people, dragging them off to death. He counts himself the worst of sinners. But his self-assessment does not mire him down in shame. He knows that even though he objectively did do terrible things, which he probably should not have been affirming himself for, he is not judged on the basis of how well he's lived up to Jewish law or to his own opinion of himself. Instead, God's opinion about him is all that matters. Tim Keller has an excellent little book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, and that is, it's based on on this whole passage from 1 Corinthians. And Keller writes that we should be aiming not for superiority or inferiority, but rather true humility. He says, true gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. True gospel humility means an ego that is not puffed up, but filled up. This is totally unique. Are we talking about high self-esteem? No. So is it low self-esteem? Certainly not. It is not about self-esteem. Paul simply refuses to play that game." End quote. Keller goes on to say that Paul's ability to step out of the game of receiving his own judgment or others' judgment is because of his justification through Christ. The verdict is already given, so he doesn't need to worry about his value or his righteousness. Christian humility is not thinking of yourself as worthless. Jesus didn't die for worthless beings. We have great worth. However, we aren't worthy, and that's the key difference. We can't earn or create our own value. Only God can give that to us. 
our goal isn't to think of ourselves as less, it's to think less about ourselves. <laughs> that is not to say that we shouldn't be self-aware or curious about ourselves. Many people do great damage by not by acting thoughtlessly, like, like you know, kids in university who don't question their own <laughs> thoughts. Um, but as far as being the judge who weighs out all our thoughts and actions and assigns shame or glory to them, that is not our place. If we're constantly worried about how we look to others, that's not our place. Only God sees our heart fully and only God can judge us rightly. Apparently the rappers say, only God can judge me. <laughs> so in that tradition, <laughs> um, we often think of, of judgment is actually the thing that we're trying to avoid. Yeah, don't judge me, don't judge each other. This is the problem that works against our self-esteem. But in a secure relationship, right judgment can actually be a gesture of love. To give no constructive criticism is to refuse loving help. Now, I studied creative writing in university and we had to each read our poem or our story out loud to the class of about 15 people sitting around a table. And then we would sit there silently while they all talked about it together. First, they talked about the good things, the merits, and then they talked about the things that could be changed. And at first I found this really difficult um, I think a lot of people who go into writing already kind of have a fragile <laughs> emotional personality. Um, but, and I wanted to just hear good things. <laughs> but at the same time, I knew that I could not grow as a writer unless I learned what my weaknesses were. I still remember my one prof calling one poem melodramatic. And it's true, it was. <laughs> my writing probably still tends to be that way. But I check for it every time I write a poem because she pointed that out. And it made me better for it. And that's what a good teacher does. They praise the good and they correct the wrong. For me, God's judgment has been a key concept in finding freedom from shame. Rather than neurotically weighing out exactly what's my fault and what's somebody else's fault, I can leave the weighing and the judgment up to God. It's not about my empowerment or what somebody else did to me. It's about what God thinks. I can think less about myself and more about God. Augustine wrote that sin is man curved in on himself. So a redeemed life actually takes us out of our obsession with ourselves by focusing our attention on God. Simone Weil said, it is not my business to think about myself. My business is to think about God. It is for God to think about me. Now, I'm, I, I wanna make a note here. I'm emphasizing that God's opinion of us is the measure of truth. But I don't wanna imply that other people's opinions have no value or shouldn't impact our self-worth at all. Because we are created to be nurtured by loving human words, as well as gentle criticism. Um, and I have definitely come to have a better sense of God's grace and compassion towards me through experiencing it from other humans, whether my family, my friends, the church community. Um, I hope that I've also affected some other people the same way. But human affirmation fluctuates. Sometimes you get the likes, sometimes you don't get the likes as they say, I just made that up. But, um, and and my self-affirmation my self fluctuates. Sometimes I feel good about myself, sometimes I don't. It is only God's love that remains unchanged and perfectly true. So almost done. The three questions that I posed for the self-love movement were, why hate myself rather than love myself? What is the self I am trying to love? What kind of love should I have for myself? And I'm gonna end this lecture by summarizing a Christian answer to each of these three questions based on what we've already discussed. So first, why hate myself rather than love myself? Psalm 139 shows that our sense of worth can only be found 
in an ontological acceptability, a knowledge that we are wanted and belong regardless of how others treat us or even how our own self-esteem shifts. God has created each one of us with delight, and with care. He knows every day of our lives. He thinks about us constantly and he goes with us wherever we go. He hems us in behind and before. He never leaves us. So we can be average looking. Go ahead, walk through the average door. If you're average looking, you can still have just as much value as a model. You don't need to be beautiful to earn your worth. You don't even have to think of yourself that way. You can fail your test or your parents' expectations and you can still be of great worth. God made us because he wanted us here, you here, me here. Because God can only say what's true. When he calls us fearfully and wonderfully made, if we disagree with him, we are agreeing with a lie. This knowledge that we're planned for, not an accident, is the only possible ground that we can have for a true sense of our worth. We can try and puff up our ego, but to actually know that God loves us and has planned for us and wants us here, that is the only logical ground we can have for this. Otherwise, it's just wishful thinking. It's a projection of meaning onto a meaningless universe. The second question, what is the self I am trying to love? According to the Bible, to be human is to be created in the image of God. We have value because God created and planned for us, just like he planned cedar trees and marmots. But we are different from either cedar trees or marmots because we're created in the image of God. We uniquely reflect God, and that is a huge affirmation of our being. Not only do we reflect God's image, God is the one who sets the boundaries for our identities. So in scripture, he, God tells us what human flourishing looks like and how to relate rightly to him and to others. He speaks into our individual lives still today, and he gives us guidance. <laughs> and though we do have agency, we don't have the burden of creating our identity from scratch and then trying to hold it together and, and puff it up. God tells us what our true self is and how to live into it. There is a beautiful line in the book of Revelation that I really love. Jesus gives us promise to the church in Pergamum. To the one who conquers, I will give a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This promise points to the reality that Jesus sees our identities in a way that even we can't divine. He holds our true self secure and we can trust him to reveal it to us as we grow up into him. When Jesus names us, he names what is true. And he names it in a way that brings not condemnation and shame, but life. So my final question for the self-love movement is, what kind of love should we have for ourselves? We all experience things that we would like to change about our bodies, our personalities, our feelings, or our minds. We experience the reality of a broken world where we hurt and are hurt by others. We fail our own ideal image. Within a Christian framework, we don't give a blanket affirmation to everything about ourselves. Instead, we can make a realistic assessment of ourselves with the help of God, with the people that he puts in our lives. This assessment recognizes our glory, but also our ruin. In relationship with God, we can humbly ask his help in restoring the ruin while giving him thanks for the glory. There's room for both celebration and lament. We can accept God's judgment of ourself as the only one that truly matters. God's judgment is freeing, not condemning, when we receive the grace that he is holding out to us. We're not just victims, because God redeems even the ugliest parts of our stories. 
He gives us beauty, true deep beauty instead of ashes, not just surface. We're not asked to work up the empowerment to do that on our own. It takes time and the work of the spirit to believe and to live into the love that God has for us. This is the work of a lifetime, but it's well worth doing. The love that we should have for ourselves is the kind that praises God because we're fearfully and wonderfully made. This is not a self-obsessed love, but a rightly ordered love. Ultimately, God's grace helps us to trust not in our own ability to love ourselves, but the deep, deep love of Jesus instead. It turns us outward to focus on him. Even when we struggle to love ourselves, as we will, we can go to sleep knowing that God is thinking about us with love, regardless of how we feel about it. And we, when we wake, we are still with him. All right. That's it. You beautiful people. <laughs> Thank you for listening. <laughs> Now we can have some discussion. I'd love to, I'd love to hear all your critiques. <laughs> Bring them on. <laughs> My identity is secure. <laughs> um, but you can also just make comments. You don't have to critique. <laughs> Either way, it's fine. Uh, Zoom too, you can unmute yourself and speak for your servant is listening. <laughs> I don't know what it is about uh, like the term self-love, but whenever I hear it, I have a funny reaction to it. Mm. Um, it just it just feels a little funny. Mm. I don't know if I, I'm curious. I'm curious about people who um, talk about self-love and practice self-love, how they hear it differently than I hear it, mm. because to me it just sounds kind of cheesy. Mm. And I'm not sure what that, not sure what that is. Hmm. Maybe because when I think about love, I think, um, like you, like one of your questions was, how do we love ourselves? Yeah. And that, for me, I guess being uh, raised with like Christian teaching, etc., mm -hmm. like that judgment, good judgment is allowed to come into love, right. or like criticism is allowed to come into it. Right. So the self self-love being kind of like um not having a lot of substance to it doesn't really fit with the way that i right right um understand love and, you know you talk about the love in a marriage as being very sacrificial right um so it just doesn't when i hear self-love there's just something that doesn't fit mm -hmm. so i don't know if anybody is a self-love proponent who could explain, like explain. Lisa is just saying that the like the phrase self-love sounds funny to her, um, or or so, sort of cheesy because it doesn't seem to necessarily have a lot of content and it doesn't have room for like sacrifice, like in a marriage or um, like we talked about for for any judgment. Um, it yeah, so it doesn't seem very substantial to her um she said if anyone is a, a big proponent of self-love maybe they can tell her how they see it um yeah i think i think you know well, like the bible does say you know love others as you love yourself <laughs> so mm -hmm. there is some you know there's some hint to that there whether we should call it self-love you know i don't i don't know <laughs> um 
with self self worth, we have a better term possibly. Self worth is kind of what I've landed on, I think, because uh, yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how to exactly describe. It's it's very it's all very fuzzy, so it's hard to exactly you know parse out what these terms mean and, and exactly what makes us feel sort of uncomfortable with it. But I think to me, love is like an essentially relational. Mm -hmm idea um and can we have a relationship with ourselves i don't know <laughs> yeah, that might be what... it's yes fred yeah. is there more verb or noun in the bible's understanding of love i i both because god is love so that's noun but there's action that goes along with it god as love came down to earth and died for us so so i think i think it's both um so i think in the self-love movement it would also say both you know self-care and then our feelings about ourselves, which may be more linked to self-esteem self ideas kind of although like unconditional unconditional self-regard really would also go along with that <laughs> um, yeah does anyone have any any comments about what lisa or <laughs> Please affirm Lisa for her comment. <laughs> well, self self love sounds very close to selfish love. Yeah. You know, which is what you know, which is sort of like the opposite of you know of, of love of other. Right. You know, you know, if you got yeah, selfish love, it's about you're willing to see other people take from other people for your benefit, mm -hmm. you know, um, as opposed to you know self-sacrificial love yeah i mean people people who are big proponents of self-love say that that's like this is the first step to loving other people so it's not just that you only love yourself and it doesn't go anywhere else it's that you love yourself and then you can love other people um i don't know that's something that i've been puzzling over maybe some other people can like if you have any thoughts about that because i hear this all the time first you love yourself and then you love other people i i don't know that that's the way that it works, <laughs> Abigail? Yeah, well, I think that the starting point is what you read in Psalm 139. It's knowing our intrinsic value because we're created by God. Yeah, yeah. So then we can have yeah. a good self-worth and only then can we truly love other people. Yeah. I, I do believe that. I think, yeah, I think like when you when you need that affirmation from other people all the time, then it, it does start to use other people as like a, a tool for your own ego. It's what's it called? The self, uh, I can't remember. I can't remember what the phrase is. It's a psychological phrase. I don't know if you know, self, self something. It's it basically using other people as, as like, this is a narcissistic thing. You need other people as props to prop up your own ego and they can only fit into your life insofar as they do that. Um, supply, narcissistic supply. maybe yeah i can't remember what it what it is uh but but yeah so i think people start to become that if we don't have a sense of, of mm -hmm. self that's secure um and so in that way it's very hard to love people especially when they're not meeting our our ego's needs right mm -hmm. um but i but yeah i don't think that we can really give that sense of love to ourselves <laughs> uh you know yeah. like i think we do need to practice self-talk I think that's, I didn't mention that, but I think that that can be helpful. Like, you know, saying, okay, is that, does that line up with reality? But we need a reality that actually can give us the foundation to, to say, yeah, no, okay. I'm not worthless because I know the truth. But if the truth is like, maybe I am, maybe I'm not <laughs> like, 
you know, I see that hand. Um, that was just an interesting line you said that um, you love someone else. Because um, I was just thinking back to what you're talking about victimization and um, how you have found it to be one of the hardest places to kind of work well that can see you can self yeah. yeah. I don't know if you can speak a bit more to that whole idea of victimization. Right. Melissa's asking about the concept of victimization and um, just sort of how it is very self-focused and self-referential and that does make it really hard to love other people out of that place um, and, and could I say a bit more about that um, yeah I think I think it I think yeah again when you see people as like always out to get you for some reason or always part of like some some something some larger problem that's out to get you again it's yeah it's a like it's a self-fulfilling prophecy and I think it makes it hard to see people as who they really are because again you need people to fit that narrative like that this is always what's going to happen to me and if some and what I've observed here and then I guess in other relationships too is like there's kind of this pedestal like like elevation demonization kind of effect where it's like maybe this is the person who will like save me or make me feel better or help me um and take me you know but then if you fail that like you're just one more of those people who did me wrong or who fit this category that like of course you know keeps me down and and so like that's that makes it really hard to love a person for who they are you know beyond just those labels or whatever um and and again like I'm not trying to say that people aren't like haven't legitimately been victimized in certain situations but if that is like how you primarily identify um that's how you approach everybody else too either like you're trying to you're trying to have them save you or you're you're just preparing to be victimized again you know so um again I think that that knowing that God gives us agency and dominion that's part of well, how he created us and gave Adam and Eve that 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 mandate um, to go forth and multiply and to to you know create culture um, and and so we all have been given that you know we can all do that in very to varying degrees um, so we're not just helpless although yeah like we have there are like limits for whether it's for social reasons or for you know physical or whatever we all have different limitations on that but we don't have no agency at all. Um, and so I think that like, it's important to remember that. And then also to remember that, yeah, we still have value regardless of what happens, you know, whether we can achieve those dreams or not, you know, our story has significance inside of God's larger story, even if I don't, even if I, if I fail, you know, so I don't know if that answers the question or yeah, no, just yeah, yeah. I think maybe one of the problems is that limitations of the English language, mm. you know, with, with the word love. I mean, what is, what is the juvenile third language part? Isn't it love has about 11 words in, in, in Greek, you know, uh, different kinds of love or something, you know, as opposed like four to, we got the one word that encompasses everything. You yeah. use the term self-love. I can see where I, I agree with you, really. You, you get a negative con connotation. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's how it strikes me, too, mm -hmm. right off the bat. It's a negative connotation. That's right, like, you know, a sense of self-worth because that comes from God. That's, that's not about me. You know, it's about I, ha I have worth because God made me. Right. 
Well, I think the concept of worth is same. It, that's that's like that has to be like an objective thing. Like, do you really have worth? Like, how how do you measure worth? And I think only like the creator knows that. You know. Yeah. So I think that love is just more about how you feel about it, or or like you know, what how you feel about yourself or what you do. Um, but it, it feelings aren't necessarily the measure of reality. So. So I think worth, worth is, I guess that's, maybe that's getting back to, that's part of why I like that phrase self-worth more, because mm -hmm. I think it, it means that even if I don't feel love towards myself, I still have worth. Yeah, I mean, we, we, can, we can, we can have self-worth. We might hate the things we do. Yeah. You know what I mean? Paul writes about that. Right. You know, hate the, right. hate the things that we do, but we still have worth because God, God gave us worth. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You don't even have to have self-love to be worthy. To be yeah. Worthy. yeah. Naomi? But do you think, like, can the self-love movement kind of be, like, a starting place to people? Or mm. is it destructive? I guess I'm just thinking about friends who, like, don't, like, want to believe in Christianity anymore, mm. but they tell me it's helpful to, like, meditate or hear something about it. Great question. It's one I've thought about a lot with my friends, too. Um, yeah, so the question is, uh, when people who are operating outside of a Christian framework are saying, like, I like to do, you know, affirmations, or I meditate, and I think about, like, you know, that I'm, that I'm loved or worthy or whatever, uh, is that something to affirm? Or do we just say, well, that doesn't count if it's outside, or like, you shouldn't think that way, you shouldn't, you know, or, or just like, kind of awkwardly sit there. <laughs> Um, for me, yeah, I, I mean, for me, I, I guess my approach is to say, like, if they're saying something true, then I affirm it, <laughs> um, even if they're not willing to accept, like, what the basis of that is. Um, although I think, I think, you know, in the right context, you could push, you could push a little and say, like, why do you think, why do you think that is true? You know, like, what, where do you feel like that sense of self-worth comes from? Um, but yeah, I think I, I like, I don't know that that's gonna, it's gonna last, right. but I think, um, I don't know, maybe other people have, but like, I guess I'm just saying what that, that's been my approach to say like, um, yeah, I'm glad that you're, I'm glad that you're feeling, um, you know, more confident in who you are or whatever. But sometimes people are confident in things that they shouldn't be confident in. So it's it's complicated. Okay, let's crowdsource this one. I don't know. I'm still working this out for myself. <laughs> what do you think? Well, I think so many people who leave the faith have grown up like thinking sort of the opposite thing, like you talked about feeling yeah. shameful or feeling mm -hmm. feelings of unworthiness. Julie was just saying that just sort of people in Zoom, that it's sad that people see that those things often as coming from Christianity and and are pushing against that because that's what they see as like the source of those things. So do you like how have you approached this? Well, yourself? I mean, I, I hear like if my friend says, you know, she's found a lot more comfort in like mindfulness mm -hmm. and just that the Christianity was often like a negative experience yeah. for her, focusing on what was negative right. rather than what was positive. And, and it's, 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 I find it hard to parse out often whether someone is looking for an excuse to not take responsibility for their own sin um, or their, or they, 
um, have experienced, you know, like wrong shaming in the church. I think so often that's a combination of both too. Um, so people who have ex grown up experiencing shame want to move to shamelessness instead, mm -hmm. but that's not the way to deal with shame. Like the opposite of shame is glory. And I think only God can restore the glory in us, you know, and speak to that. So just doing whatever we feel, although, yeah, it feels good to not give any moral evaluation to our, to our actions. Um, I don't think, and I don't actually think that's really possible to not give any, you know, I mean, yeah, even in some really bad cases <laughs> to not judge anything we do, you know, um, and we can't live up to our own images ultimately too, I think. Um, it looks like you had something to say. Well, just like, it seems like some of the, you know, um, people in, uh, you know, um, like especially friends that I have, or maybe like what we call like hippies or, or new age or whatever yeah. terminology, just, you know, sending out good vibrations, mm -hmm. you know, very, um, yeah, just like okay, one with the universe, all these types of cliches, you know, and maybe just a, there's a, there's a not wanting to think about it, not wanting to deal with difficult questions, whether they're biblical or just mm -hmm. in the, in the world. And, um, and yeah, like, I mean, I think there's, I, I have friends like that too. They just want to be positive, right? Just, mm -hmm. just positive. And, um, but I remember just even just uh, going back to the one uh, questions, like why is the self-love then? Like, you know, I think it was the initial question is like, why is it so powerful or why is it such a thing? Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember asking like a student about a mother once and, you know, and, uh, the expletives started to flow mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, just like, I hate her. She hates me. I was mm -hmm. like, wow. Um, so it's like, you know, if you've got nothing, you got either if you've got these super complicated questions that you don't want to deal with or you've got nothing right where do you turn right mm -hmm. what do you turn to mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, where do you find it right? mm -hmm. daniel right yeah daniel is just saying that um people yeah people often just want to be positive and kind of just like good vibes only <laughs> sort of thing and often it can be this avoidance of have to, having to actually grapple with these difficult questions of their relationships and their own image and um yeah just to try to be like optimistic or positive about things that kind of just like chill um I, and yeah someone said said to me or i asked a question at a lecture a while ago about about the kind of chill west coast types who um i can't remember why i asked the question but he was just talking about that that's um oh as like a way to to not worry <laughs> i think i was asking about and and he said that that's actually like a form of despair <laughs> because you're not like you're not fully engaging with life you're kind of just checking out and saying like ah, there's no way to deal with it except to like just be chill and you know like mm -hmm. uh, i think so i think the christian call is to is to step into those hard places um and and we have we have the courage and the power <laughs> of god to do that um and yeah i think it, it it can be pretty dark if you're just trying to not think about it because you don't know if you go, uh, I think, um, and lots of us feel this, such Christians included, but if I open that Pandora's box, I'm going to drown, <laughs> like, if I really look at these things. Um, but I think that that knowing that Jesus is walking with us and walked into this, uh, it makes a huge difference. Um, and I think, too, just to what you were saying, Julia, the psychology part of it, like, I don't want to dismiss <laughs> psychology, because, and, and I think that some of these 
like, yeah, like in um, the coddling of the American mind, they talk about CBT and how that can help you like work through some of these like negative thoughts and stuff um, and to challenge some of those things. So some of these tools like can be really helpful and everyone can use them um, Christian or not. So I think you can do some of, some of this work regardless of whether you have faith. But I think, um, again, it's, it, if you really want to peel back the layers and say, where does this come from? What's the grounding? It doesn't have like a, it doesn't have an actual sort of logical basis. And I think it also doesn't have the power of the spirit in it. So, um, yeah and the justification of jesus so yeah it's 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 a it's a different it's a different story but it doesn't mean that it can't have any change it can't affect any change like i have seen friends be helped by this you know um some of the stuff i have, I have a thought <clears throat> yeah i mean i've seen so many people who find it very difficult to love themselves and the desire to love themselves and i have a lot of sympathy because i think they do feel like uh, a plastic bag blowing in the wind, you know, uh, they do feel like garbage. Uh, they feel like wasted space mm -hmm. because we live in a society that doesn't, that's all self-referential yeah. and you're really looking after yourself. And when I find someone who's just looking to be happy for themselves and love themselves, you know, I, I have a lot of compassion and sympathy, but I also realize that that's a dead end, you know, um, and that you know that the resource is gonna run out. And as we've been talking, we, we, we thought, what is a better orientation is, okay, I'm, I'm made in God's image, Jesus loves me, but sometimes people, if they leave that as a self-reference, find it still difficult to believe that, no matter how true it is. Uh, and you mentioned during your talk that well, one of the things that helped you is that people steadied you, other people's love and other people's interest in you. Mm -hmm. And so I think if, if we claim Christ for, for ourselves and our lives, mm -hmm. that it should be evidenced in how we love other people yeah. out um, uh, instead of just trying to regard ourselves and reminding ourselves that Jesus loves us. Right. But that we are so convinced of it that we are actually outward focused. Mm -hmm. And and you find someone who has difficulty loving themselves, receiving, mm -hmm. and maybe maybe they don't notice. Maybe they just think it's, you know, um, sometimes people are black holes. Like no matter how much love you pour into them, they just seem to just, you know, keep sucking it out. Right. And uh, uh, that's true. It doesn't mean that our claim isn't still there and we need to be wise in how we love. And uh, yeah, are we just reinforcing victimhood? Are we just reinforcing their own happiness goals? Mm -hmm. uh, so when Naomi was talking about what do I do when someone who just wants to, don't bother me. And it's very difficult. They, they, they draw hedges around themselves, almost imper impermeable, mm -hmm. impenetrable. But I do believe that we as Christians, if we evidence love toward them out of self-regard, then I think that's the best way for people to, to have a bridge out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Clark is just saying that it's not just about like our, our, 
private experience with Jesus um, that also like the love that God gives us needs to be extended outward. And that, that, that is like, I think a, a witness to people being like having worth and being loved um, partly is how we express that. Um, and I think, and, and, you know, that's what Julia is saying is like the opposite side of it has done a lot of damage from people who mm -hmm. don't, don't experience that from Christians. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, uh, but I think too, like, cause, cause I don't want to return to like this idea of like, just, you know, constantly giving to anyone who asks anything and being the doormat, you know, like, like uh, Thomas Akempis says, um, but to like, because that it comes our call is like what God is giving us, not every, what every other person wants from us to, to like fill their own ego, you know? Um, and also to recognize that sometimes saying no or um, giving a critique is sometimes the most loving thing to do for another person too. So like, what is, so we can ask ourselves like, what is really serving this other person? Because you don't need them to even necessarily feel loved by you. <laughs> like if you feel like God is, you know, calling you to say something maybe maybe they won't feel loved by you in that moment but that might be like what they need so i think mm -hmm. that's a, the a, where christian self christian love can look different from maybe what people are necessarily wanting mm -hmm. <laughs> um but i think that's yeah the the shame thing like we have to be careful how we do that too, you know, to, to make critiques. Like, mm -hmm. is it, is it cutting down and is it partly to make ourselves feel better or, um, you know, putting a burden on people without wanting to help lift it, you know, uh, mm -hmm. and that legalism or fear, um, mm -hmm. or are we really, you know, for me, like, I think I realized, you know, sometimes the same two different people can say the same thing about you and it can feel totally different. And, one person is like looking at you and they're like, that is a hot mess. Um, and you can feel it when they make that comment. And then another person is like really seeing something about you that God has created. Like they want you to become mm -hmm. who God has created you to be. Mm -hmm. They want you to live into the glory. One person sees the ruin and the other person sees the glory. And if they're mm -hmm. saying that comment, it's because they feel like you can grow and become that person who God has made you to be. And to me, that makes a huge difference in how that comes across. So I think for us is like, our, is our posture to, to other people to restore that glory along with God, or is it to tear down um, and point out the room, you know? So yeah. Lisa? I just think that's really interesting because I was thinking about how redemption tied into up at all. Mm. You did mention that it talked about that yeah. a little bit. Yeah. And um, yeah, maybe that's something that, it might be missing from the self-love movement mm -hmm. is it's just trying to reach self-love without any change and yeah. change yeah and acknowledging that there's like we all make mistakes and we do selfish things mm -hmm. um but like through redemption that's mm how -hmm. we become more yeah um, yeah it's a process mm -hmm. and and it's not perfect. Like we can't do anything. We can't achieve everything. We won't. Schaefer talks about substantial healing, not perfect healing in this life. Mm -hmm. But I think you're right. It's very sad for if people just say like, I'm perfect the way that I am. <laughs> it's annoying for other people. <laughs> and it's, and it's ultimately sad for yourself because you don't grow into the potential that God has put in you um, and how he wants you to, to grow and change. So um, yeah, I think 
I think it is, it is quite sad and, and maybe that's something I really have to offer people. And so I guess like back to your thing, Naomi, I, yeah, I feel like even if people aren't open to any critique to speak something that is true is still true, like something that's good and true. It's still true. And it's still, that can still be a word from God, you know, to So I, you know, I do try with my friends who aren't Christian to affirm the things that I see in them. Um, and I'm not just like, I'm not just trying to flatter them. I, I want to speak something true to them. Um, even if they don't know where it comes from, or don't care or whatever. Uh, Cause I think that's speaking to the glory. <laughs> um, even if they're not ready to recognize that there's some room there as well. Um, it's part of it. Yeah. Doesn't a lot of it come though from when you're young? If you get self, you know, if you get affirmed by parents, grandparents, if, you know, whatever, you get the affirmation when you're very young, that that, that can carry you through life. Mm -hmm. If you get just the opposite, mm -hmm. you know, if you're always being criticized and, and everything else, you carry that through life. Mm -hmm. And I think it's pretty hard to rise above that yeah you know that you, you know you it's, it's something that is then becomes part of who who you are and you sort of can't get rid of it mm -hmm. right greg's talking about childhood influences on on self-worth um yeah i think definitely like how how we were raised has a huge influence on this not entirely though because i think there's a lot of other factors too in, including personality like you see one family and one kid is a mm -hmm you know, high sense of self-worth and another doesn't. And, you know, some, yeah, people, the same events affect people differently. There are social factors. Um, there's lots of, lots of things, but I think that is one, you know, like, I think it's amazing if parents can really speak that truth into their children as well. Yes, I'm I'm just wondering, like, there's so much talk about mindfulness as my yeah. own brought up and especially in my, my field of, um, like the whole social work and, and right. psychology right and i I've, I've been thinking about this and what do you think about mindfulness being an element of prayer it's not the whole thing but there is worth in it there is benefit in it but i i've sort of felt like it's just not the whole deal right. it's, it's so far and 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 no further so is that kind of a connection that we can we can agree that it is beneficial. Yeah. Like so, prayer, but it's just not the full. Can you maybe say a word about what mindfulness is for it's anyone who doesn't totally understand? She's asking about mindfulness and prayer. Yeah, I mean, I haven't given her a lot of attention, mm -hmm. but just as being present with yourself in the here and now. And there's ways you can become mindful just by tapping yourself mm -hmm. and, and and just getting so that you're you're here and with yourself and it, it brings peace and calmness instead of thinking about the thing tomorrow or the right. troubles of yesterday or the the person over there you're just getting settled in yourself mm -hmm. and so i think there's an element of that to really connect with god mm -hmm. and yourself mm -hmm. in in the prayer there's, a, there's an element of that. Yep. Well, I don't know what people. Yeah. Think. Yeah. So, and I, and what I understand about mindfulness too, is it's kind of like you're, you're watching thoughts pass through yourself, kind of like a river without making a judgment about all of them, you know, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. so it's kind of, it's right. kind of a self-compassion kind of thing, but you just let them go. It comes up, or you let it go. Um, 
yeah, I think, I think mindfulness can be helpful. Um, and I think that that it's related to the like Christian practices of like Christian meditation too, you know? So yeah. I think we've lost, actually lost that tradition in the church is that ability mm-hmm. to be still, mm-hmm. um, and not just like consumed with all the voices in our head, which is a, it's a discipline, which I'm not very good at, but, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, so I, I do think there's a place for it. Um, I think that prayer is like you said about a lot more than that too. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one thing, but it, I read an interesting article about mindfulness, a woman who practiced it a lot in university. And she said that, uh, she actually started like, she started to get worse at making decisions because she was constantly just letting things like just trying to transcend mm-hmm. the thoughts and the feelings, but she wasn't actually doing any work of dealing with the root causes and the, and, and like how to act. Right. So if it's yeah. just like letting it go, letting it go, letting it go, it kind of goes back to the, just be chill man kind of thing. You're not actually doing that work of engaging. I think for people who are so like, just like consumed with the inner circus, like it can be really helpful to just slow down and kind of release some of that, but it can't be our only tool. Yeah. Um, and, and I think in prayer, you know, we have, we have petition, we have Thanksgiving, we have adoration, um, we have these other elements to it. And, and so part of it is that stillness, but there's so also these other things. It could be a point of contact. Yes, a for point sure. Of, of, of relating to yeah. somebody, a starting point. Yeah, yeah. And then being able to maybe say how much, right. what prayer means to you. Right, right. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Because people are seeing like a need for an inner life, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Like Paul, we have to look for those. Mm-hmm. um connections and culture mm-hmm. yeah so to say like yeah and then self-love movement is like seeing a real problem that exists we can say that like yeah it's terrible that teenage girls are like so depressed and anxious and, and like yeah. comparing themselves to these unrealistic mm-hmm. selfies and instagram models and stuff that's a mm-hmm. that's a huge problem you know um but this might not be the full <laughs> solution you know so so yeah mm-hmm. uh Okay, well, let's let's close here. Thank you everyone. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.